Hello, everybody. This is Elise Wickstrom and Sarah Campbell, and we are live, live from, from the past. past. We have a very special guest today to talk about a very special topic. We have Dr. Elizabeth George with us today. Dr. George is an associate professor of history and global studies at Taylor University, and her research and teaching interests include women in American history, public history, and the intersection of games and learning. Dr. George received her BA from Houghton College and her master's and PhD from Stony Brook University. She's been a professor at Taylor since 2018, and previous to Taylor, she has taught at Mid-America Nazarene University and Stony Brook University. Some fun facts about Dr. George. She lives in Upland with her husband and two children. She has lived on both coasts of the U.S. and in the middle, and she's really great at giving recommendations for books, movies, and TV shows, for those of us who are history nerds, <laughs> which is all of us here today. So that's super exciting. So, welcome, Dr. George. Thank you for being here. We're welcome, very Dr. excited George. to have you. Thank you for having me. And today, we have a super fun topic, one of my favorite things to talk about. Of uh, first and second and third, Just question mark. First and second wave feminism. First and second wave feminism. Specifically in America. Specifically in America, not third wave. Not third wave. Okay, cool. Yeah. But, before we get started, how was your week, Elise? My week was good. We just had our spring break here. Um, we're almost a week back in, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So I'll go from, from Monday to, to now I've been, I've been feeling not super great, unfortunately. Um, but you know, uh, we're trekking through, I'm turning in assignments. So it's that point yeah. in the semester where we're a little tired. Yeah. We're all a little but tired. We're here. almost there. We're mm -hmm. good. How's your week been, Dr. George? It's getting back from spring break. Yes. Pretty good feels very busy. I always feel like March is very long and then April flies by. Mm -hmm. Yeah. April is non-existent. <laughs> yeah, because you're just getting ready for finals. Dead week in finals. I week. know. Yeah. It's crazy. What was the best thing from your spring break? And then we'll get into our topic. Ooh. I had a really good time hanging out with my boyfriend. That I, I, we're, He and I are long distance. So I... Elise was in... I was in Michigan. Michigan. So I have a really, really hard time getting to see him for more than one and a half days at a time. Not a weekend. Not so like it's not a weekend. It's like a full week. Yeah. So it was That's really nice. lovely. Yeah. Good. How about you? I finished my study abroad application. Mm -hmm. Yay. That's Yay. all I worked on the entire time. Mm -hmm. Like eight hours a day. Do you feel relieved? Yes. Good. How about you, Dr. George? I feel relieved that Sarah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> She's gonna get it. I know it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, Besides I'm being, sure too. But mm, well, thank you. I appreciate the confidence in me I that mean, I do not have in myself. You were working eight hours a day for a week, and then also I know on good authority, my own, that you were working a lot before then too. And the requirements like twelve essays, right? It's yeah. Well, between that and the Taylor study abroad application, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. So. You're you're doing a lot of work for a lot of yeah. requirements. I feel like so. I need a spring break for my spring break, you know. That sucks. Yep. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so before you got sick during spring break, what was the best part about your spring break? Well, we had a few nice days here. Like the weather was oh, actually yeah. springy. And so then we all got excited and we were playing That's outside. Nice. But then the winter came back. <laughs> yeah. 
that's Indiana weather for you, just Midwest in general. But we had the uh, briefest glimpse of spring, mm-hmm. which was nice. Yesterday was like 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. yeah. Super windy, but still nice and then temperature. And now we've back into the 40s, which is more appropriate, I suppose. More appropriate for April? Yeah. <laughs> that makes me sad. I mean, it's Indiana. <laughs> still makes me sad. <laughs> um. So what yeah. what do we have first we on the docket for today? Well, before we get into first and second wave feminism, I want to preface our conversation with looking at the definition of feminism and what feminism means to us today and what feminism means in this conversation and history period that we're entering into. And so the definition that I took from the Webster Dictionary is the belief that women and men should have equal rights and opportunities. So you may be wondering why we're talking about this today besides the fact that it's one of my favorite things to be talking about because on the show we've said before we're not allowed to be political but this is not an inherently political conversation this is just a basic conversation of equality and looking at the history of what is considered to be a political i mean like political history right but Mm -hmm. inherently this is not a political topic it's political history but we're talking about basic we're talking about this neutrally and the fact that it's the idea of men and women having Mm -hmm. equal rights and opportunities. A definition of a more political nature is organized activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. So, like, political activity is different just from, like, straight-up equality. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So there are typically recognized four types of feminism. These are mainstream, intersectional, radical, and cultural. So today we are just looking at the history of feminism in general. So these are the first and second waves of feminism. Being a feminist simply means believing in equal rights for all genders. We're not commenting on a political issue because this is not a political issue. It's just equality. Sure. So with that being said, I think we can move into first wave feminism and start with a few kind of words that pop out when you think of first wave feminism. Suffragettes. So for for me, um, could you first define the period that is first wave feminism so that I can know like what kind of yeah. words I'm trying to draw you out. Dr. George, here. do you want to give us a, an idea of what we're entering yeah. into? I mean, the, the beginning probably would have a lot of debate. Some people would say as early as 1848, like Seneca Falls, uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Women kind of movement, mm-hmm. uh, or Declaration of Sentiments. Um, and then, but others might say 1870s, like 80s, uh, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, that time, up until women get the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what I have found in my research typically is what people understand is I have that 1848 date. So late 19th century, early 20th century conversations happening here. Sure. And it refers, we're talking specifically mostly in America, but just generally in the West. Um, and the first sustained political movement dedicated to achieving political equality. So it doesn't just mean like this is the first time like, hmm, are women equal human beings to men? This is not the first time that this thought has happened. This is just like the first time that we see sustained political movement acting on this. There's like a declaration. Yes. And the likes of Seneca Falls. A literal is, declaration. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have before this the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Citizeness, but that's not necessarily tied to a movement like Seneca Falls. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's more in the U.S. Yeah, exactly. The, the, at least the first and second waves. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about Seneca Falls, we're talking about when almost 200 women met in a church in upstate New York to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition of the rights of women. Um, so if you want to talk a little bit about the Seneca Falls Convention. 
Yeah, well, it's uh, it's such an interesting story because it starts with um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and some friends of hers uh, just getting together just as friends. Um, a lot of popular sources call it a tea party, but I think that's a little bit derogatory. Yeah. <laughs> they ha- probably had tea. I mean, maybe they had some snacks, but um, <laughs> they got together and they were just sort of talking about... Um, a lot of the issues related to the things that women were allowed to do as part of the abolitionist movement. And so mm-hmm. feeling like their voices were restricted in abolitionism, um, even like when they went to like this world abolition conference and women had to sit like behind this curtain, mm-hmm. <laughs> even Yikes. if their husband was there with them, like wow. the husband could sit in the main area and the woman had to sit behind a curtain. <laughs> So they just Yikes. felt like they. What's the purpose of that? Well, it was like just that women. It was really like these women are not the leaders of this movement. They're not. Their sure. voices aren't the most important part of this. I mean, it was a contentious issue that had been splitting abolitionist movements. Like, how active should women be? And so, um, that these women, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, they they were active in the abolitionist movement, frustrated with that their voice was seen as less than men's voices and so then like at this gathering they said hey we should get to get get some women together and um and talk about this more seriously and then that's when like from that conversation elizabeth katie stanton drafts the declaration of sentiments and then they have the meeting you might recognize the declaration of sentiments if you're a hamilton fan uh with that line from i can't remember the Skyler sisters? Yeah, but it's, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are mm. created equal, which actually is not said in the song, so never mind. No. It's we hold these truths to be self-evident that all, that men, all men are created, created equal. Yeah. But in the Declaration of Sentiments, they dir- like directly attack that by adding mm. women into that statement. So. Or, yeah, they, they expound upon it. Yeah. 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 Um, so moving on from the Seneca Falls Convention... Sure. Um, we can now look at first wave feminism and like the influences by looking at the collective activism of women in various other reform movements. So as we talked about before, the abolitionist movement, um, the French Revolution and the temperance movement were all foundations to women participating in these conversations. Um, would you say that one was more important than another? Well, especially for like women getting the right to vote, everything with temperance was a huge precursor to women just being much more out in public and Uh, speaking about a political issue and having much more influence it's so funny because temperance was such a huge issue and to us it's like such a sidebar kind of Mm. thing and it just seems like oh that was just a weird blip but for the people at the time everybody was very concerned with that that well just the feeling that Americans were drunks <laughs> and that and especially that men were like drinking away their salaries and not supporting their families and so it was a huge issue of you know can politicians do something to help these families you know if persuasion won't work what mm-hmm. what can be done politically to at least to maybe like take the alcohol away so that they um, there isn't as much public drunkenness and just all the ramifications of having so many people so drunk. <laughs> I mean, alcohol also, um, I don't, I'm not sure about in the 1890s and stuff, but certainly in the earlier period, alcohol was more alcoholic than it is now. Mm-hmm. And so it was a lot easier to get drunk. Um, and so 
it was just more, especially as people are moving into cities and working um, kind of away from their families, it was just much more common for alcoholism to be an issue. And so it became a huge political issue. You know, um, prohibition is passed before women get the right to vote. It's seen as mu a much more important issue. But through that, women start to really participate. Their women are like the leaders of the prohibition movement, like women like Carrie A. Nation. <laughs> Um, in Kansas would go around smashing barrels of alcohol like yeah. you would go into a bar with an axe oh my gosh and just do massive destruction that sounds like a fun and, time and just and you know it was like if you were if you were a real man you'd be here with me with an axe beating Whoa. you know like uh, attacking these saloons and bars and um, destroying alcohol wherever you found it. And if you know, like if you really care about your family, you're going to care about prohibition. And so wow. it was a huge political movement and it was a massive way for women to get involved politically. You know, like even with our Taylor history, Kala Vanger got yeah. very involved in the prohibition movement to the point where her husband was the president of Taylor and <laughs> um, he was not as famous as his wife, who was much more active. So... Um, it was definitely an avenue for women to ha take a stand on a political issue and make their voice heard. And a lot of people thought it was appropriate for women to speak about it because it was like a family mm. issue. So uh, it kind of gave women a way in to yeah. have a vote voice. Yeah. That's interesting. And so then like they got kind of used to being politically active. Mm -hmm. And so then they, they have like the structure in place to try to fight for more rights. Yeah. That's very interesting. One of my favorite things to look at, like a primary source document in um, first wave feminism, is the Abigail Adams letter, Remember the Ladies, to um, John Adams, which basically she was writing when he, he was writing the Constitution. Um, she said, you know, don't forget the ladies, remember the ladies and your Constitution. And he basically scoffed and laughed at her and said, you think I don't know how good it is for me right now? I'm not changing anything. <laughs> so sad, but funny. In yeah, a very sad way. Yeah, I mean it's it's nice that we can see like through their letters that we can see their like the authenticity of their relationship and that mm -hmm. they did have that back and forth, even if she never really got many rights within their relationship. They were they were kind of saw each other as equals, which I think is somewhat unique for the time mm -hmm. that he did value her opinion so much, uh, and that. She did have a voice with him. She, he would really take her ideas into account, uh, even though, you know, like they would push back and forth at each other, like in that exchange. Yeah. But she certainly is unique at the time for having such an equal marriage, I think. Yeah. So what you're saying, I, w correct me if I'm wrong, but I, what I think you're saying is that John Adams and Abigail Adams, like John Adams had a blind, not a blind spot, but he made an exception her when it come, came to women in uh, like having a, some form of equality yeah so I mean certainly he valued her opinion mm -hmm. her you know she was not as educated as he was but he constantly was uh, seeking her advice and he was that the letters they wrote between each of them the two of them they're just amazing to read because mm -hmm. it's just two people on equal footing mm -hmm talking back and forth about this massive, the beginning of the country. And yeah. she's right in there, you know, stating her thoughts and ideas. And he's, yeah. you it's know, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, she does not get the credit that she deserves, I think. Yeah. 
yeah there's a there's a there there's been quite a bit of scholarship coming out about like the wives of the founding fathers and how just how influential they mm-hmm. were um, we should do an episode about that someday. <laughs> yeah. Almost every single episode, we come up with new topics that we have to eventually talk about, and yeah. we're going to run out of time at some point. Yeah. But, you know, it's a good problem to have. It is. So I think one of the big things that comes to mind when you think of first wave feminism is the suffragettes and the suffrage movement. Elise and I have gotten into the, a debate about the suffragette movie. Is that what it's called? Debate? Not a debate, oh, a I discussion. Haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, maybe it was just because Dr. Johnson invited us over to his house to watch it, and mm-hmm. I immediately turned to Elise and said, I don't like this movie. You don't <laughs> like, I it? like it? I It's too much for me. Is it the, is it the intensity of the yes. movie that is too much for you? Not the I don't like super intense movies like that. Okay. Isn't Meryl Streep in it? For mm-hmm. like 0.2 seconds. Isn't she on the cover? Yes, it's the whole Zendaya <laughs> Dune thing. Don't get me started. <laughs> it's the Zendaya Dune thing where she's not even really in the movie, but they put her face on everything to make it more popular. Interesting. There you go. Those are my thoughts on it. Anyways, <laughs> the suffragette movement. Um, we're looking here at the 19th Amendment, women's right to vote, which uh, went through on August 26, 1920. But up until that point, there was a big fight for this to happen. So in the U.S., you have people like Alice Paul, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony. In the U.K., you have people like uh, Emily Wilding Davidson. She was the one who jumped in front of the horse, which they do show in the movie. Yeah. That was not super great. I would just like to note that in the outline it says Emily Wilding Davidson. Horse. (laughs) Well, that's why I remember her. She jumped in front of a horse. I do my research. (laughs) I I believe you do your research. I just, it's a funny thing to put in. Horse. (laughs) Horse. Um, Emmeline Pankhurst, which I think is who Meryl Streep Mm -hmm. played for Mm. the whole five minutes. And Charlotte Marsh. Um, You have women of color like Sorniger. Sorniger? Sojourner. Thank you. Truth. Um, Maria Stewart, Francis E.W. Harper, and these were all major forces in the movement working not just for women's suffrage, but for universal suffrage and the right to vote. Um, so do you think this is kind of the basis of first wave feminism or one of the most important elements or how can we view it within this movement? Well, I, I do think kind of the connection across the Atlantic is very important because mm. both sides were helping each other as far as keeping it in the news, making it into a bigger issue. Um, both governments have to kind of wrestle with what they're going to do about it. I think mm-hmm. if only one of the two countries had been really working toward it, it maybe it would have taken a little bit longer. Um, so I think it definitely helped that it was like in the news a lot. Uh, and it also helped that the women in Britain were so radical, like jumping in front of horses, but also <laughs> yeah. a lot of like hunger strikes yeah. and, uh, just they were like willing to put their bodies on the line for it Uh, and there was a fear that things were going to escalate in the united states and we'd start having those same kinds of stories Mm -hmm. Uh, and like with alice paul having hunger strikes too there's already the sense of hey we need to figure this out before like these women are just dominating the news with all of these very radical acts so i think it pushed uh men to to realize they it was a big issue that wasn't going to go away. Yeah. I can't remember what museum it was in. Probably one in Michigan. That there's just an empty cell that's supposed to represent where Alice Paul was with the hunger strike. And you know how they, like, put the tubes in them to feed them. And that's what I don't like about the Suffragette movie. It's just too intense for me. But oh, it has, like, 
forced feeding in it. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. I just don't like really intense stuff like no, that. No, I might not be able to watch that either, actually. It's really intense. Um, Anyways. I watched, so- <laughs> I watched just one movie about the hunger strikes in, like, the 1970s with, like, the various political movements, and I just could not. It's <laughs> a lot to watch. Like, it's a different thing to read about it and to hear about it than to mm-hmm. actually physically watch it happening. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> there's a museum where they have, like, an empty jail cell that represents where Alice Paul was and the force feedings, and you just hear her screaming. Like, they're piping in audio of her screaming and, like, the sound of her feeding tube being put in. I'm like, why? What is the point? <laughs> like, I get it's to make an emotional, like, connection with this, but whoa. Okay. Remember- okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways. Anyway. Um... With all of this being established, do you think there's any concluding statements that we need to make about first wave feminism before moving into second wave feminism? Well, I mean, I think obviously it is a key moment that women get the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people felt like, okay, it's done. Like everything's been solved. Women have the right to vote. What else is there really to Mm -hmm. talk about? Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is that the women got all mobilized and energized by having this this long drawn out battle and getting all these victories Mm -hmm. and having all these connections and working together that it wasn't like you could just say, okay, now everybody just go back to what you were doing before and don't talk to each other anymore. Right. (laughs) So the first wave, that's why we talk about it in waves, because one kind of lead, they're connected. One leads Mm -hmm. to the next, and it was sort of like the genie was out of the bottle at that point, and Mm. you can't just feel like, okay, it's done. Yeah. Was there also some, well, I'm guessing there was equating of legal legal equality with, like, moral, well, like, social equality and and academic equality. Mm. And, like, so... Was was there oh, <laughs> my question for you is was there oversight on the part of um, of the men at the time in thinking that legal equality was just equality? Well, maybe to some extent. I think everybody still knew there were issues like in marriage that mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. didn't still didn't have control of their property, or when they got divorced they could um, not have anything, uh, or they could like the custody of the children could automatically go to the father Mm -hmm. so everybody knew that there were certainly a lot of social issues that hadn't been resolved sure and it's like now that these women have this taste of of power what are they gonna what are they gonna ask for next yeah credit cards (laughs) (laughs) bank accounts perish the thought (laughs) Okay, so that is a very quick overview of first wave feminism, but that does lead us into second wave feminism and kind of the marker or the turning point that is considered to start the second wave of feminism is the 1963 publication of The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, who later co-founded the National Organization for Women. Uh, So in this book, she is addressing the problem that has no name, which is basically this inequality that women faced in these roles that they were expected to automatically fill, and it raised critical interest in issues such as workplace equality, birth control, abortion, and women's education. And I have a quote from the book that says, in almost every professional field, in business and in the arts and science, women are still treated as second-class citizens. It would be a great service to tell the girls who plan to work in society to expect this subtle, uncomfortable discrimination, to tell them not to be quiet and hope it will just go away, but to fight it. 
A girl should not expect special privileges just because of her sex, but neither should she just adjust to prejudice and discrimination. So, building off of this, we can move into second wave feminism. Uh, names you might recognize, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug. Uh, yeah, so if you just want to give us an overview of what you think is most important to know from the second wave feminism movement. Yeah, well, second wave feminism is so interesting because there's like so many different storylines right. happening all at the same time. Yeah. And so all that complexity makes it very interesting. It's also... Like with Betty Friedan, it's a very kind of white middle class mm. version of discontent and a, a lot of working class women and black women uh, or minority women were not experiencing that same issue in that same way. They mm -hmm. weren't feeling discontent with their lives. They were just trying to make ends meet. Right. <laughs> um, and so... Um, it's interesting that we st start to have different versions of feminism or what does feminism mean to to individual women, especially when it's right. not about something specific like the right to vote, when it's more about social equality or uh, expanded rights, mm -hmm. then uh, everybody's going to have their own definition of what that is and what that means. Right. And so that's where it gets starts to get more complicated and also more interesting as far as historians are concerned. Uh, because there's even uh, conflicts within the movement. Uh, and that's yeah. very interesting. I love that part because it, instead of it's like, here's this sort of steady stream of of triumphant women, you know, on this holy quest, it's here's, a, here's an argument among women. Some people had good ideas, some people had bad ideas. Um, there's some, you know, some people are motivated by one thing and some people by another. So just to have more of like a juicy story. Yeah. Uh, and it seems more similar to the rest of history that we discuss. You know, oftentimes mm -hmm. women's history, it's like only the story of women fighting for their rights and they're all good. <laughs> There's no mm -hmm. like villains. Whereas yeah. traditional, like the meta narrative of history is you've got the all these complex characters with conflicting motivations and of course that's true for women too it just we don't tell it that way so at least with second wave we can start to tell more of the complexity of the story and see women as having you know various motivations and goals that are going against each other and like what's gonna happen yeah mm -hmm. um so i i think it makes it a lot more interesting and a lot more real for what the past actually is mm. yeah um, so these, there are two names here that I r recognize, Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, but I don't know anything about Bella Abzug. Uh, do you think that maybe you could give us a short portrait of her? Yeah, I can, or you can if you want, Sarah. Well, I'll just say really quick, in my intro, I mentioned that Dr. George is really wonderful at recommending books and movies and things, and so she recommended that I watch the show, is it Miss America or Mrs. Mrs. Amer America. Mrs. America on mm -hmm. Hulu? It's a spectacular show. I think it's one of my favorite shows now. I literally probably watched it in three days. And it talks about this whole second wave feminism, Bella Abzug, um, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, and kind of the conflict between them and um, Phyllis Schlafly, which we'll talk about later. Um, mm, and Phyllis the, Schlafly. Yeah, the ERA and yeah. the fight for the ERA. So I'll say, if you're interested at all in the conversation that we're having, watch that show, which was first recommended to me by Dr. George. So I'll give you credit. <laughs> Anyways, Bella Abzug. <laughs> Yeah, so she was a congresswoman. So she, in many ways, had the political power in this in the kind of second wave feminism that 
number of women, other women didn't necessarily right. have. So she had, you know, more uh, contact with like traditional politicians and she was a respected congresswoman. Mm -hmm. And so she was able to even ask for things or work for things and people were going to take her seriously. So um, she, that was kind of her angle on it was the, the definitely the political side of things and kind of lobbying and working the, the politics um, side more than like leading the social movement, although she was certainly present in a lot of the events and things like that. But she's most famous for being a congresswoman and yeah. for her hats. Her hats. <laughs> if um, you're around the age of 20 or so, you'll know the actress who plays Bella Abzug from Hannah Montana's grandmother. There you go. <laughs> I, I have no context to put that in. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uncultured, Elise, uncultured. <laughs> you don't know Hannah Montana's no, grandmother? I don't, I've never watched Hannah Montana in my life. I thought we were friends. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to watch time. the Disney Channel. You weren't? Pagan tomfoolery. Oh my gosh, we're not getting into this conversation <laughs> right now. Let's go back to second wave feminism. I'm sorry I took this to Hannah Montana. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk about Steinem's Mrs. Magazine. Or Ms. Miss. Magazine. Yeah. So sorry. I'll say just before we move into the Miss Magazine conversation, this time it started to be referred to as women's liberation. Um, and then 17... Whoa. <laughs> 1971... <laughs> The feminist Gloria Steinem joined Betty Friedan and Bella Abzug and the founding of the National Women's Political Caucus. And so I think that's important before moving into Miss Magazine, which was the first magazine to feature feminism as a subject on its cover in 1976. So it was a landmark institution in both women's rights and American journalism that it is today. And it's still a publication today. It has a great website that has a lot of resources that I found my research on. So anyways, if you want to talk about the importance of Miss Magazine in this whole conversation. Yeah, and I don't know a ton about Miss Magazine, but um, certainly it was like a vehicle for more public expression mm -hmm. of these feminist ideas. Uh, it was a publication obviously devoted to uh, talking about these issues, having articles about it, having women writers. Um, and so again, it's more elite, it's more white, it's mm -hmm. more um, just focusing on maybe the kind of the social political story that um, a smaller slice of women are experiencing. Although they were, they did try to represent diverse women in the magazine. Um, but it was still seen definitely as like a radical publication. Like if you were seen reading Ms. Magazine, people would definitely assume that you were some kind of radical liber. feminist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, a, a kind of contrast is Cosmopolitan Magazine was also very popular at the time. Helen Gurley Brown was the editor and she had a very different take on feminism. You know, they call it lipstick feminism. Hmm. But it was sort of, I mean, she, her ideas were sort of what became like Sex in the City. I know, I know Elise probably has not seen that show either. But <laughs> I surprisingly have seen more of Sex in the City okay. than, than Hannah Montana. Montana. <laughs> <laughs> you shocked me, Elise. Go on, Dr. George. <laughs> watching that instead of him no 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 no, no. <laughs> totally different time frames of my that's best. good to know <laughs> but like that sort of version of femininity that because helen Gurley brown wrote a book called sex and the single girl um and it's kind of that whole idea of 
how you can use your femininity to to get ahead basically and to compete with men and to even hmm. like use men. <laughs> Yikes. So, um, and that was kind of what she was talking about in Cosmopolitan is, hey, here's all these tips and tricks to, um, you know, compete and get ahead. Whereas Ms. Magazine was much more, it wasn't like, let's do some tricks. It was like, here are the issues we're facing. Here's, uh, here are some voices that have solutions. Mm -hmm. And so very different approaches, but still kind of in the same sphere of like public uh, magazines that were marketed towards, you know, young women. Um, I feel like that's a theme we see throughout a lot of history before this, too, of, like, women who were willing to work with their femininity in the system in order to sort of, not bamboozle. Do what they had to do. But do what they had to do, yeah, in order to get ahead, um, versus women who outrightly rejected the system. Yeah, and it let you know it led to some interesting results even in our own lifetime, like with the Me Too movement and mm -hmm. kind of a backlash against that whole idea of like use what you've got to get ahead or like lean into this ideal of what a woman should look like and be like, mm -hmm. and then you'll rise to the top. But I feel like there's been kind of a a backlash against that more recently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one of the words that we started with talking about with the four different types of feminism is intersectional feminism, which is kind of accepting women where they are, supporting them, and where they are all different races and genders and class, like an intersectional view of feminism. So that's important to mm -hmm. look at. Um, but anyway, I think we can move on to talk about the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, which is a huge conversation within second wave feminism. So this legally sought equality for women and banned discrimination on the basis of sex. It was passed by Congress in 1972, but following a conservative backlash was never ratified by enough states to become law. Is it my understanding that this is still not law? It's a proposed amendment? Right, because... I think I think Illinois. It was like down to Virginia and Illinois recently. It I was think like were the up two. to twenty twenty. Yes, and I think yeah. that they did. Ra they did vote to ratify, but the deadline has already so expired. So Congress would need to extend the deadline, and so that's where it sort of stopped. Yeah. And then it's it, like COVID hit. So blows my mind that we are still <laughs> fighting. Hit so women don't have rights. Oh my gosh. <laughs> It blows my mind that we're still, I mean, we watch these, like, historical TV shows that are fighting for this thing that we're still fighting for today. That just, wow. Uh, like, this is, this is why I feel a little, well, I feel a little bit of sympathy for Phyllis Schlafly in this, what? too. Because they're, they're, like, I'm not saying that she was right. By the way, Phyllis Schlafly, opponent to the Equal Rights Amendment. They're Equal Forum. E what? Hmm? Equal Forum? Sorry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Her, her yeah. The Eagle Forum. Yes. Eagle. I thought you said Equal Forum. I'm nope. sorry. <laughs> um, I was like, what? Um, like, I feel I feel a little bit of sympathy for her because it's like, I don't know. Um, it, do we do we really need the Equal Rights Amendment in order to have equal rights? That's I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case. It's just like there there's a, a, a you know, a case to be had there, of, like, what legislation will actually help us will the equal rights amendment do what it's supposed to do yeah yeah and the, i mean that was a huge argument at the time and since is mm -hmm. like is this actually necessary because in the constitution it says all citizens have equal rights women are citizens yeah um, yeah so it's already there mm -hmm. it's just a matter of how it has actually played out and so some people say it needs to kind of like be reinforced or it's right. really if we had this amendment then we could have these court cases yeah you yeah. know to 
to, to say like that legislate know, better yes yeah because so. if we wouldn't need it then why do we still have the pink tax why do we still have the wage gap like all these things so. yeah but it's also will like you said will it actually change mm-hmm. anything in real life or will it it just or people will be, be like oh yeah. yeah like oh it's passed so everything's mm-hmm. equal now yeah like with the voting rights bill right voting rights for women will it just like sort of mitigate the problem rather than actually fixing it mm. um, but like that that's a question the, e- the ERA has not been passed so we don't know the answer to it <laughs> yeah yeah. and Dr. George's class American and Women well, Women in American History last semester we did this game basically where we assume the role of people during second wave feminism and um, on the different sides of pro ERA or against ERA mm-hmm. Um, there were people who, like, who assumed the roles of Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and Phyllis Schlafly. And I think it was interesting, um, the person who had to play Phyllis Schlafly really did not like Phyllis Schlafly, <laughs> understandable. Um, and so it was interesting to, like, see her have to get in the head of this person, like, understand the reasoning behind mm-hmm. um, why she believed what she believed. Mm-hmm. So it is i wish i could say i could do the same but i really struggle with her <laughs> i really have a hard time with well, her as as you know I, I i think i mean as as you should know by now dr george assigns assigns roles to the people who would least expect them i know <laughs> that kills me I, well i would have given it to sarah but i knew she just would revolt so. <laughs> a who little did you play bit sarah? what who did you play sarah I think I was a journalist. You were a journalist because I needed you to ask some questions. Mm. <laughs> and I would have been too upset if I was Philadelphia and too into it if I was Gloria Steinem. <laughs> I'm too passionate about it. I know it's a problem. Um I'm st- I this is totally off topic, but I'm still confused as to why you cast me as the governor general. <laughs> you, were, you did great. Thank you. What I game had was a great this? time. It was for um the abolishment, the abolition of sati in India, in British India. And who did you play? I played the governor general. She of had British to like India. make the choices. Yeah, hey. I called on people in the class. Good for you, <laughs> governor general. <laughs> had a wonderful time. Anyway, see, and it stuck with you. That's yeah, definitely. Yeah, you. that game was one of my favorite things I've ever done. That was really fun, mm-hmm. and I it really got me into understanding second wave feminism and. Um, you know, now I've read The Feminine Mystique, and I've subscribed to Miss Magazine, and I'm into <laughs> yeah. it now, so. Uh, anyway, so going back to the ERA. Um, so, am I correct in thinking this was originally drafted by Alice Paul? Mm-hmm. That is so interesting. So, it was, Alice Paul lived from 1885 to 1977? But she yes. drafted it, like, soon after the 19th Amendment was passed, or maybe even right. before. Like, and it then was it was early. still fought <laughs> up until... Second wave feminism in, in 2020. Um, so the initial effort to ratify the ERA in the 1970s fell three states short, and the amendment has now been ratified by the final three states needed, which was Nevada in 2017, Illinois in 2018, and Virginia in 2020. So that's what we were talking about previously. Um, yeah, I guess if you're interested in this, watch Mrs. America. I really <laughs> enjoyed it. I can't say that enough. So... Anyway, it has Kate Blanchett. It's really good. It's oh, Kate so Blanchett good. is the best person. <laughs> and Hannah Montana's grandmother. What more would you want? <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be there for. I'm gonna be there for Kate Blanchett. And is it Rose Byrne? Is that who it, who's in? Who's it's Gloria Steinem? Rose something. I don't know her last yeah, name. Yeah, I think she looked a lot like her. I was very impressed. Well, it, I don't know if you guys saw the movie Bridesmaids. It's like a little before your time of I being interested. But yes, yeah, she I believe was in that movie too. Mm. And um. Yeah, Kate Blanchett plays Phyllis Schlafly. 
Oh, cool. She's really good. That's yeah. really interesting. And yeah. um, there's another famous, is her name Alice? Or did she play someone named Alice? She played someone named okay. Alice. I don't, she is like, She's famous. Yeah. I don't know her name. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Is it's that like helpful? one of those people that you're like, oh, that lady who's in everything. But yeah. I just don't know her name. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. There's a lot of famous people in it. It's really well done. I've watched it three times now. <laughs> we should watch it together at some point before you leave inevitably. Yeah, you're going to leave. Oh, I was very <laughs> confused. I'm like, are you kicking me out? No, no. We should watch it together before you go on your study abroad thing. Yes, we will both do that. Yeah. We'll definitely do that. Yeah. That'd be fun. You know, I just have a paper and a test and another paper. and We can watch it over Zoom over Sounds the summer. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so then other important things to look at in second wave feminism is the Roe versus Wade ruling. And then also Shirley Chisholm, who was also shown in Mrs. America. So she ran for president. She was the first African-American to run for a major party's nomination for president of the United States in 1972 in the 1972 presidential election, making her the first woman ever to run for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Um, Yes, because U.S. Senator Margaret Chase Smith had previously run in 1964 for the Republican nomination. Um, So I had never even heard of Shirley Chisholm before watching Mrs. America. And then I talked to my aunt about this conversation and she literally worked directly with Shirley Chisholm. And I had no <laughs> idea and it blew my mind. Who is Shirley who who is Shirley Chisholm? Am I saying her last name yes. correctly? Shirley Chisholm. Okay. Yeah. She she, she ran. Okay. Wow. Yeah. She's that's amazing incredible. and I've literally never heard of her before this and I don't know how. And it's one of those things that makes me sad that like in my general history classes I'd never heard of her. Well, was, part of it is like usually history classes struggle to get into the 70s because like you spend so yeah. much time yeah. in the early stuff. Because there's out so, time much, at the so end much of the details year. for the, yeah. like, the revolution. And, you're right. And, and like if you do war. anything it's like quick we gotta do Vietnam. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. But, so it was the, she was the first woman and first African American to run for president. Yes, well, first, for the Democratic Party, there was another female before her who ran for the Republican oh. nomination, but she was the first African-American to ever run for a major party nomination. Uh, who, who was the first woman for the Republican Party? Margaret Chase Smith, Margaret who was a U.S. Senator. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, yep. yes. Yeah, but Shirley Chisholm is super interesting, and my aunt worked with her directly, and it blew my mind. I'm so sorry, you already said Margaret Chase Smith. That's okay. <laughs> um, so Shirley Chisholm was kind of extremely influential in leading this movement and kind of being a figurehead um, of second wave feminism, not only for women in politics, but African-American women to be part of this more intersectional conversation of feminism. Uh, What would you say the significance was of her participation in this? Yeah, I mean, obviously having that, again, having that more political side of things also to, to be talking about it on the national stage uh, to be figuring out how to marshal support for her, like to get all the women on board and kind of deliver that mm-hmm. uh, t- that vote uh, to her. And then, you know, what partnerships do they need to make? What concessions do they need to make in order to actually get her to continue on? And right. so it was obviously very complicated. Um, and probably, you know, she just was like ahead of her time, um, obviously, because we're still... Um, you know, haven't had a woman president yet. So, yeah. Um, but Sarah is going to be the first. So that'll be I'll exciting. jump on that. <laughs> After study abroad, I'll get on that. <laughs> get on I your political. You, <laughs> don't you have to be thirty-five at least to be the president? I'm also yeah. was not born in the United States, so I don't know if that poses a problem for me. You're a U.S. citizen. Oh wait, 
Do you I'm, have to be born in the United States? Or just do you have to, to be, be born in the United States? I think you do because that's like, why Alexander Hamilton could. Not yeah, be. I feel oh, like I looked, right. but I looked into this and I couldn't. Unfortunately, he. That's weird because he wasn't. Bo- he was born before the creation. Right. Yes. <laughs> that doesn't make. Wait, any wasn't sense. he born in the Caribbean? Yeah, he yeah. was born in, in Saint Kitts. Something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's very strange because no one was born in America at that time. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting idea. But I feel like I did look into this just for fun, mm-hmm. and I found out that I couldn't. Okay, but you could. Can't you still be like a? You can be like a, a senator or something. Yeah, that's okay. I'll run for your Scottish prime minister. Okay. Would you be able to do that because you're an American citizen? <laughs> I'm just in quite a conundrum. <laughs> you can't be the oh, prime anything of Whoa. a country, unfortunately. Wow. Don't tell her she can't. Now she's really going to... That's only going to make me want to do it That's more. why I'm doing it. <laughs> now you're just we'll going to change the law. Figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out. That is frustrating. We'll make We'll make an amendment. <laughs> Yeah, would I rather be president of the United States or prime minister of Scotland? Well, would you... Let's let's take a second to think about this. Would you actually enjoy being president? No. That's the that's the kicker. <laughs> I know. No, I would never actually want to be president. Yeah. But I, I could imagine... see myself working for some sort of women's rights organization. Oh, but yeah. But president, no. I feel like you'd be a great, like, house representative, too. Thank you. Like, very... Yeah. Very good. I'd vote for you. Oh, I would definitely I, vote for I you. I appreciate yeah. that. Anyway. <laughs> Too bad. I don't even have a U.S. birth certificate. Because, like, when you get oh, here, yeah. I... Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> this is beside the point. That's beside the point. <laughs> so, summing up the conversation of second wave feminism, we can mark the start of third wave feminism. We're not going to really go into talking about this, but what typically people think of as starting this third wave is the Me Too movement. Um, and some people even think that we're now into fourth wave feminism, which is marked by kind of recent events of um, more intersectional conversations. Um, yeah. So some people think we're still in third wave. Some people think we're in fourth wave. So what's the dividing line between third and fourth wave for the people who we believe we are in fourth wave? It is very interesting. I didn't look too much into this because I was more doing research on mm-hmm. first and second wave feminism. The distinct mark of third wave feminism is the Me Too movement. What there is not like a firm, distinct mark for fourth wave feminism, which I feel like that's why it becomes a bit more of a murky conversation. And some people think that we're still in third wave feminism. Um, so I'm not really sure. I don't have an answer to that. So are you saying that third wave feminism started when the Me Too movement started, or well, it's kind of like, was it more the product of? You know how like the, the second wave, wave feminism kind of was marked by Betty Friedan writing the Feminine Mystique. Mm-hmm. Third wave was marked by the Me Too movement. Okay, so that's sort of. I see how that works. Okay. Yeah. So we don't really have a clear, definite marker for the fourth wave, if there is a fourth wave. I mean, I think some people would argue that we do. I'm not going to comment because I really don't have enough information mm-hmm. to give you an answer. So, Dr. George, do you have any input on this? Well, yeah, I think it. I think it's just a case of us being too close to be able to tell. Yeah. yeah. You know, what, it's not history yet. Right. <laughs> We're living it. Yeah. Me Too movement's barely history. Well, it isn't history actually. Technically, I think it's still kind of... Right, still, I yeah, think, ongoing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so 
you know, like, where does the second wave end? Mm -hmm. And does it just right. turn into the third, the beginning of the third? And does yeah, it we're like just go close. dormant for a, for a yeah. sec? <laughs> or is it just yeah. like the, the slack ocean between the waves? Yeah. I don't know, like, where does the metaphor just completely break down? <laughs> the slack ocean between uh. the first and second wave. Well, there does seem to be a clear, like, distinction between first and second wave feminism. Yeah, whereas, yeah. like, second and third is a bit harder to discern. Yeah. So, Espe yeah. Well, yeah, especially because there's a little bit more there. There's a le there's less of a of a period in between there. There's less of a right of a slack ocean time. <laughs> yeah, I mean there are like great things happening that are contributing to modern day feminism yeah. movements. Like um, the pink tax has uh, been eradicated in Michigan, and all period products are now free in Scotland. Oh wow, cool. Isn't that spectacular. And this is why I need to go. And then. <laughs> decriminalization of sex work has been has started in a lot of european countries making yeah. it making safer. it safer criminal to buy a prostitute but not criminal to be one right which was a huge problem which is previously. a huge problem yeah i mean and currently and yeah so places. like cutting down on sex trafficking yeah yeah so that's those that would be like a marker of the third wave of feminism. yeah so these are all wonderful conversations to have mm -hmm. um this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you for being here to talk to us about this. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it Some fun. people have asked questions for mm -hmm. you. So let me pull those up. Oops. Okay. Here we go. The first question for you is, what is your favorite film or TV show related to women's history? Hmm. Well, oh, I well, I really like that movie Suffragette. <laughs> you don't I like. feel it. <laughs> I was fairly I, I saw it. I loved it. I like it. I just have a problem with gruesome things. Yeah, I mean, yes, it it, it it's intense. It, it is. <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that I mean, TV shows certainly Mrs. America. I really like, but even if we're talking about like third wave feminism, like Thirty Rock is a good example yeah. <laughs> of third wave feminism. I think. <laughs> Parks and Rec. <laughs> Have you seen The Great at all on Hulu? Oh, about Catherine? About Catherine the Great. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah. I've heard that that's it. a good yeah. one. Yeah. I've heard it's good, too. I haven't seen it either. Yeah. Ellie Hammond keeps telling us to watch it. I feel like that's something you would really like. Cause, like yes, Russian because, like, Russian history. Yeah. It's right at my alley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elise, do you have any other favorite films or TV shows about women's history that you enjoy? I, mm, let me mm, think. <laughs> this isn't history, but when it comes to feminist filmmaking, I really love L Lady Bird by Greta Gerwig. And Little Women by Greta Gerwig. Yes. That's my favorite. I love Lady Bird. It's really good. I think, I think that Little Women is beautiful. Yeah. Um, but Lady Bird is like the portrait of the modern American girl. Yeah, and I just like love that. the story of Little Women. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I also love. Um, oh shoot, it literally just went out of my head. Lady Bird, Little Women. Oh, Emma. Elise and I recently uh, had mm. a movie. Night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we watched Emma. Here's the thing with me and feminist filmography slash literature. I prefer to watch things criticizing men than about specifically feminism. Like like Fight Club. Like what? Like. There will be blood, like more <laughs> typically masculine films that 
tend to criticize mas like hyper toxic masculinity. Interesting. Um, than like specifically films about women, which I know is a blind spot for me, but like that's tends to be what I gravitate gravitate towards more. <laughs> yeah. Gravitate. Um, so I would say if if Fight Club cl counts as a feminist movie, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I like Fight Club. <laughs> well. All right. Okay. <laughs> Another question that uh, is for Dr. George is, what is the best book to read as an introduction to women's history? Ooh. Or several um, books, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm still struggling with that, with teaching the class to find kind of ways to get into mm -hmm. it. Because, you know, you can read like a textbook, um, but that might not be the best way in. I, I mean, a lot of my interest in women's history came from reading women's stories like mm -hmm. even when I was little like yeah. even reading books about like when girls were the protagonist um there's a book Madeline Takes Command it's <laughs> like of this girl in like the French and Indian War who you know like had to defend the fort <laughs> and it, I you know I really liked it or um there's a book called The Calico Captive when she gets taken by Native Americans I, I've read that book <laughs> yeah yeah it's good yeah so I think like those stories of like putting women that's that put women in the stories we already know but like oh there were women there too um, that's the way I like to get into yeah. women's history. I mean, certainly for like uh, second wave feminism, my favorite way to get into it is by reading books by Nora Ephron. Ah. <laughs> and Nora Ephron lived it. Like she was there in the seventies. Uh, she was writing for Esquire when, like, as when all the women's liberation movement was happening. So she was writing about it even before she knew what it all meant. Hmm. And so it's just like reading books like, um, I think it's either Crazy Salad or Wallflower at the Orgy. <laughs> um, <laughs> books that like, she it's just like her essays from Esquire, just as she's living mm -hmm. through the feminist movement in, of the That's 70s. Cool. Yeah. What was that name again? Nora Ephron, who Nora Ephron. wrote okay. like When Harry Met Sally. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, like those, cool. those, well, what's the, so I she mean, was a literary figure in that time. Yes. yes. She was just like a reporter okay. in the seventies. She wasn't making movies. Um, she was just writing. She, you know, she's an incredible writer. So, well, she, she's passed now, but <laughs> still her writing lives on. Yes. Mm -hmm. How did you know that you first wanted to be a history major and then a history professor? Well, um, Again, I would love to read history as a little kid. So, like, I would read my, like, history textbook for fun. Like, That's nerd. what I did. <laughs> That's also what I did. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I think it was partly not having enough good history books being, like, shoved at me as a little kid, mm. which I'm not faulting anybody for not doing that. <laughs> I don't even know if they were available at the time. Um, but, yeah, certainly just, A, if you love to read, and then mm -hmm. if you love to read stories about real people even if it's like fiction but it's like in the the real world <laughs> like based on historical events or an yeah. historical time period um then it uh, like that was certainly for me the way that I knew I wanted to get further into history just I love stories um and so and I love to read so uh, I needed a, a profession where I could get paid to read <laughs> nice we all want that yeah, yeah. 
So then how did you know that you wanted to become a history professor? Was there a turning well, point where yeah, you figured that out? Yeah, it's sort of odd because even like my freshman year of college, like even in my first history classes, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I was mm -hmm. too nervous to like actually say that's what I wanted to do. So I was like a history major with no career goal. <laughs> People were like, do you want to teach high school? No way. That sounds awful. <laughs> so... Um, I knew I wanted to be a history professor, but I just wasn't very bold about it. Partly because there weren't a ton of, I didn't have a lot of role models of, of female professors. Hmm. Um, at Houghton, when I went, you know, for undergrad, there weren't any his, uh, female history professors. I mean, it was a small department. Um, and so it just was like, is this even a thing? Like, is this even possible? And like, I wanted to get married and have kids too so how is that all gonna work out and so I knew early on but I didn't pursue it until after graduation and even after like I was just going uh, applying for master's programs at first just like let's just see how this goes yeah hmm. I know Elise wow. wants to teach high school right that plan is deteriorating before. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Um, I'm just, I, so my boyfriend is a first year teacher. Oh, no. You And I hear that. stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure his students are great kids, but like the difficulty of being a, a high school teacher in general, like not even with the kids, but the administration is really, like yeah. it, it does not sound appealing to me. Um, but I, you know, I would like to teach in the future if that has to do with like history professor. Yeah. Or maybe I could get up the courage to get a teaching license. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which or I think like museum educator. Oh, maybe. yeah. yeah. Like, uh, work at a museum and teach. Or, yeah. 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 I think we're very different because I definitely don't want to teach. But that mm -hmm. just shows there's many different options with a history major. Yeah. So. Yeah. I would be choosing the boring one if I taught. That's but. not boring. I don't think that's <laughs> boring at all. We just want to do different things. <laughs> Um, that kind I'm of being self-deprecating. Don't be self-deprecating. <laughs> You're doing great. I'm also, inadvertently making fun of Dr. George. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Teaching is wonderful, and we need teachers. I we didn't do. Even think there we go. Fun of me because I don't think of history as teaching is boring. <laughs> <laughs> it's not boring. I feel like if it's boring, none of us would be here. So it's, it's true. It's not boring. It's it's no. It's very appealing to me. But yes. yeah. I think that leads us to our last question, which is, what is your favorite course to teach? And is there any courses you hope to teach in the future? Yeah, well, I really do enjoy Women in American History. I've only taught it, well, once here. Um, so I'm looking forward to, it usually takes like three times before it actually starts getting good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that I'm excited to keep teaching it. I love teaching the U.S. History Survey. I, mm -hmm. Even though I do it over and over again, I get excited about each day of it. Like I, I still love it and so interested in, in like how to do that well with people who don't aren't that interested in history. <laughs> um, and then I love. I mean, I love teaching the upper level classes too because you get to be with people who are actually interested right. in history. So I'd say there's not much that I don't love about what I what I get to teach. That's great. So um, when I was in your European Empires class, I was under the impression that you didn't like U.S. history. I don't know why. Oh, yeah. I guess I really sold it. You did. You, you sold European history to me. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. But I'm like, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you do get that value from the U.S. history courses. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, 
it's very different because it like it's it's easier to teach people who already have some knowledge of history yeah mm-hmm. um, and are interested and have questions whereas with US history survey you're selling it more like mm-hmm. let's I'll tell you why we should learn about this yeah. um, so it's just different mm-hmm. sure all right. Well, I think that brings us to the conclusion of our episode today. Yeah, right on the hour, too. Yeah, thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs> thank you so much, also, Dr. George, for yeah, joining us. Thank it was really you. great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. If you have any questions about uh, first or second wave feminism, we'll be posting some resources on our Instagram page. Mm-hmm. Also, I know we've already said this about 50 times in this episode, but watch Mrs. America. Watch Mrs. America. <laughs> we, watch you would almost Jets. think that we're sponsored. Watch Fight Club. <laughs> there you go. All watch these Hannah great Montana. feminist <laughs> pieces of art (laughs) all right what a great way to end yeah (laughs) well wherever you are whatever time it is have a great day this has been elise rickstrom and sarah campbell and this has been live from the past